Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 20, and we're going to continue on in our, our march through the gospel. And we're going to be looking this morning at the resurrection. What a joyful and a wonderful subject to look at this morning. The life that is yet to come. I wrote to you some this week in the newsletter about heaven and about turning our hearts towards heaven. And we're going to see this morning a group of people uh, that did not believe in the resurrection. And I have no idea where you stand this morning when you come into church today, whether you believe in the life yet to come or not. But you're going to be confronted by these things by Jesus this morning. And so we've come through the Passover week. We're in the midst of the Passover week. We've come through the triumphal entry and Jesus clearing the temple and the authority of Jesus challenged and Jesus' condemnation of unbelief. And then these people, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, and now we're going to see the Sadducees this morning coming against Jesus to physically undo him. So let's read from Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. If you would please stand to honor the Lord this morning as we read his word. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead... Neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels, are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him." Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All right, so we see various groups of people come to Jesus in his ministry. And this is the only exclusive occasion where this group called the Sadducees come to question Jesus about something. Well, in the, the Jewish culture at that time, there were two major groups that ruled the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of the Jews. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And of the differences in theological beliefs between the two, the major significant difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees was that the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection or eternal life, and the Sadducees did not. The Sadducees were our modern-day equivalent of secularists. They believed that when a person dies, the soul just perishes with the body in death. They did not believe in the existence of angels or demons or the afterlife. They did not believe in any future reward or any future punishment. They just believed that when you die, everything just ceases to exist and that's the end of everything. And this should sound very familiar to you because there are millions and millions of people in this world today that do not bear the name Sadducee but believe the exact same thing. That when they die, everything will just cease to exist. And so what's here is here. Life is life. Make the best of it because when it's over, it's all gone. And so I ask you this morning, 
is this where you stand? I, I cannot see into your heart. I don't know if you're nodding your head, but you really in your heart believe this is it. Like when it's over, it's over. There's nothing other than what's here and now. Or how many of you are just one step beyond that where so many millions of Americans are that just simply have a vague optimism about the life to come? We hear about it all the time. Someone passes away, and what is, what's said? Well, she's gone to a better place, or at least they're at peace now. And I always ask the question in my own heart, you can't ever ask it at the funeral occasion. It's very difficult to talk about these situations when someone has just died because it's just so out of step for the situation. So we have to talk about it on a morning like this and ask the important question of, really, like has that person really gone to a better place? Have they gone to a place of peace? What is our basis for believing that? Because just a general optimism as to, well, when someone dies, they just all go to heaven. Emphatically, the Bible does not teach that. That's called universalism. Everybody just dies and everybody's forgiven and everybody just goes to heaven. There are churches called Unitarian Universalist churches that teach that, and it is not a biblical doctrine at all. And so when we look at these realities, we have to ask certain questions, very important questions of what will happen to you when you die? Are you prepared for death? So much teaching in the church has to do with living the here and now, which is important. Eth this is ethics. How do we live the Christian life in our life now? But doctrines and teachings that have to do just with the here and now and positive thinking and things like this, they mean nothing when we come to the end of life and we're facing death and we're facing eternity. The questions and answers that have to do with that come from Jesus and they come from the Bible. And so I would ask you, on what basis do you believe that you will go to heaven? Or are you like the Sadducees, believing that everything will just be done at death? But I would have you to know, as Jesus is going to point out, that that Judaism from the Old Testament continuing into Christianity with the advent of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, these have always believed in eternal life through the living Lord God. He says in verse 38, God is the God of the living. And so we're going to get there. But it is very important to understand that the Bible has always taught life after death for those who have faith in the Lord God. And so there's this odd question that these Sadducees bring to Jesus. These who do not believe in the resurrection bring him a question about what? About the resurrection. Which is, it's, not a, it's a disingenuous question. It's a question that they really don't want the answer to, but they're trying to justify themselves by coming up with this very strange, uh, contrived question to try to corner Jesus into some answer that he, some question that he cannot answer. And so the question is based upon an Old Testament civil law. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, you have a passage on something called Leverite marriage. And what this is, is if a, a woman marries a man and then the man dies and you have a young widow left with no child, what is going to happen to her? And this is very important in historical context to understand that the ancient Near East thousands of years ago was a radically different place than you and I live in right now. And so what did it take for people to live? 
And back then, a young widow, a young childless widow was in a doomed situation because she was not tied to any family. She had no land. She had no children to support her. And so the purpose of this civil law of the brother taking the wife into his home and having children by her that she might then have a family and have land and have a future was something that was considered a positive benefit to her. In fact, it's so significant when you go back and read Deuteronomy 25 and get near the 9 and 10 verse there, it says that if a brother would not take her, which means he was just going to leave her out in the cold on the street to beg or to enter into some other type of life, that she had the right to go before the elders and take his shoe off, which was a, a sign of, of uh, dishonor, and spit in his face before the elders of the, of the, of the local area because this person had so dishonored her by not being willing to take care of her in her, in her impoverished state. And so there was a purpose for this civil law in the Old Testament, and it was meant to be merciful towards a young childless widow. But what they do is they turn it, they take a practical ancient civil law and turn it into an absurd situation by multiplying it over and over and over and over into a situation that has never actually happened and never would happen and try to entrap Jesus in it. And so I would ask you, how many times has someone that you know that is a, a secularist, someone that does not believe the Bible, comes to you with an absurd question about the Bible that has nothing to do with any sort of reality and is something that can never actually happen and want to trip you up with it? And so I think it's important for us to look at the way in which a secularist or someone that does not believe in the Bible or does not believe in God, how they look at the world. Because a secular person has no concept of the spiritual. And these Sadducees, as secularists, have no concept of the spiritual. And so their understanding of what heaven is going to be like, the unknown, is just projecting the known into the unknown. And that's what we see in every version of the afterlife from people in any culture that have no revelation from God. The next life looks basically like this life, but with some differences or more exciting or lasting longer. And so that's what they're doing here. They're projecting the known into the unknown because they have no revelation from God as to what heaven is actually like. And so Jesus' response to them is very important, and it's a response that we should hear. Because this uh, occasion is recorded in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I'm going to read to you from Matthew 22:29, which is Jesus' first response to them right after they ask him this question. It says, But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So his response is basically, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And so you have come up with some question and some situation that has absolutely no bearing on heaven at all. And so Jesus' response is very important for us. When we're looking into spiritual things, Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures. That's the first thing he says. If you would have to know anything about God or anything about spiritual things, we must go to the scriptures. The Bible presents itself as revelation from God, God making himself known through his words and actions in the Old Testament, through Jesus, through the apostles, through the Holy Spirit, that these things are written down that we might understand something that is revealed to us about the spiritual world that we cannot enter into without it being made known to us. 
And that is very important that we understand that just our thinking and our seeking after God will always fall short. It will always lead us astray and it will always take us to a hopeless place. Ultimately, this is what the philosophy of man is. If you go to the bookstore and go to the philosophy section and just start pulling down things and reading, what you're going to see is the ruminations of people down through the ages trying to reach in to deeper spiritual things and, and make sense of it all apart from God. They know nothing of the scriptures and they know nothing of the power of God, but they're trying to sort out the world. And where do you end up? It's not a happy place. You end up with people like Nietzsche and things like this that talk about life is nothing other than a, a struggle for power and death. And there is no meaning. There is no end. It's all pointless. Without revelation from God in the scriptures, we cannot understand what the next life is going to be. And so in verses 34 and 38, Jesus takes some time to teach them and to teach us something about heaven. There is much taught in the Bible about heaven. There's much said about the life yet to come. And it is important that we dwell on those things. But we're going to look this morning at the specific things that Jesus teaches them related to the question that they asked him about the life that is yet to come. And so in verses 34, uh, verses 35, excuse me, he, Jesus says this, But those who are considered worthy to attain the age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now this is an important doctrinal statement. They just ask him a question related to marriage and heaven and the resurrection as to how this was all going to work out if people were married to multiple people and what that was going to look like in heaven. And Jesus clearly and emphatically says people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Marriage will not have a place in heaven. And this is difficult. This is, this is received differently by different ones of you in the audience. Those of you that have joyful marriages think, man, this is strange. How could it be that I could live my life for so many years so dearly and nearly attached to someone and then have a different form of attachment to them in heaven? There are those of you that are in struggling marriages, bad marriages, and to you, this is good news. You think, well, perhaps that one day this, this struggle will end, or whatever it may be. Those of you that are single, that struggle with singleness, say, I'm not sure this is good news at all. Like, I'm struggling with singleness now. Does this mean I'm going to be single forever? Like, this is not good news. And so this, no matter where you are, I think this strikes us with difficulty. Because it takes us to a place that we would not expect heaven to be like. And so we have to think about it. But Jesus always, when speaking of heaven, is speaking of our spiritual happiness. Heaven is a, is a spiritual place. It's the place where God dwells. And so it is different than this world. It is not just more of the same. And I think one of the most important things about the nature of heaven and how it relates to this passage is that when we enter into heaven by the grace of God and are glorified, meaning sin is taken away, it relates to the fact that all hindrances of the soul are removed. We have many hindrances to our soul right now in encountering and being near to God. I mean, the list could just go on forever. It seems like every day I'm just clawing to find some time and be near to the Lord because of all the innumerable hindrances both within and without that keep me from being near to the Lord. But when we enter into heaven, 
all the hindrances will be removed. There will be no more weakness. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more disease. There will be no more busyness and labor in a way that takes away. There will be no more death. And in there being no more death, there is no more need for birth. And also, as we learn from this passage, there will be no marriage. So how do these two things relate together? It's my understanding that the way these things relate together, it comes to us from the Apostle Paul. Because marriage is certainly not bad, as Paul says. But Paul is very clear and spends a long time saying that marriage is, in fact, a hindrance in a certain way to an unhindered devotion to the Lord. If you go and spend some time in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, basically the whole long chapter is about this. And so he goes into saying how marriage is good, it is a blessing, that we shouldn't uh, be prevented from it. But where does he go at the end of this chapter? He goes at the end of the chapter laboring to help people understand that there is a price to entering into marriage. And what is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that when a husband and a wife commit to each other, they commit to very real responsibilities, very real responsibilities that take up an enormous amount of time. And so the husband providing for the wife and for the children and the wife providing for the husband and for the children and all of these things, those of you that have are in this situation with children, understand exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. It takes up the vast majority of your time. And it's not a bad thing, and it has many purposes and many things that point us towards the Lord. I'll talk about it in a moment. But we need to hear what Paul says in verse 35 to not misunderstand what he is saying about marriage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 35, at the end of this very long uh, discussion on this, he says this, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your own undivided devotion to the Lord. The whole purpose of the chapter is for Paul to extol and lift up the concept of undivided devotion to the Lord. That the greatest possible good is a heart that is fully given to the Lord. And so Paul chose not to be married, giving his whole life fully devoted to the purposes of the Lord. He understands that that will not be the normal course of things, but he also knows in his heart that the greatest possible end is to have an undivided heart toward the Lord. The summum bonum, the highest good, being an undivided devotion to Jesus. And I think what we see here in what Jesus is saying about heaven is that part of heaven and part of what is taken away from the uh, distraction towards the Lord is that there will be no more marriage. There will be no more uh, distraction in this way towards our devotion to Christ. Because by that time, the symbolism of Christ and the church and the love of marriage, which is beautiful symbolism that the Lord designed into marriage, by that point, it will be fulfilled. And the incomplete nature of single people needing one another, that those things will be satisfied in the perfect nearness of Christ. And the needing of other people. To get, we, just, we need each other to get through the struggles and hardships of this life. But those struggles and those hardships will be past, and they will no longer be necessary. And so I think the right understanding of what Jesus is getting at here and what Paul is hinting at is if you think back, and I hope that when I say this, you have a time that you can think of, 
a time when your nearness and devotion to the Lord and the, the overwhelming presence of the Holy Spirit was so wonderful and so full that you think, man, if I could just remain in this place forever, how good and beautiful that would be. You know that when tomorrow the day dawns and work comes in and all the struggles and distractions of the world come on you again, that it's gonna pass and you're gonna have to seek after the Lord again, pressing through much distraction and much hardship. But I understand heaven to be in part like that, that that moment in time where we get to experience a little bit of what it means to have undistracted, undivided nearness and devotion to Christ and the joy and the pleasure that that brings, that this is going to be the essence of heaven that is, goes on unending in a beautiful, beautiful way without distraction as created by the Lord. And so I think also in not misunderstanding what Jesus is saying here as something that is bad, we need to look at abuses of this. And what do false religions do that know nothing of the scriptures or of the power of God? And what do they project out into the future when they don't have the instruction from the Lord Jesus that we have here? And Mormonism is absolutely one of those. Uh, you may or may not know that one of the central doctrines of Mormonism is eternal marriage, or they call it celestial marriage. And it directly contradicts what we have here uh, and what, is Jesus, what Jesus is teaching. And it becomes a central doctrine of their belief because they understand that people in their own righteousness and their own seeking with help from God become gods one day. And in becoming an actual God, they, they seek to preserve marriage into eternity so that you have a husband and wife God that literally reproduce to produce children of God. And they believe that in the, if you are, reach the highest level of these things, that you will in fact produce your own planet and be God over your own planet. If you've never heard of these things before, I'm not making this up. I'm serious. Like, the, folks, this is, this is a very serious belief structure for a lot of people, but it relates to projecting our current situation into the future, into something eternal that we make up. It sounds like something you would hear from Greek or Roman religions from days gone by, but it is now here and with us. And so very well-meaning and very passionate people hold on to their marriages, believing that they are going to go into the future and that they are going to get together become gods. And they go backwards with this to teach that that is where Jesus, the Son of God, came from. That he is not uh, eternally existing, but he is a God because he is actually the offspring of two, uh, etern two uh, deified, if you will, uh, men and women that was a father God and mother God that produced God the Son. And this is the projection that you get that takes us radically off course from biblical doctrine when we choose to reject certain doctrines like this. And so what we find in the Bible is always something different than what we would think we would find. It always leads us in a different direction that we end up seeing, wow, this is a much better direction. This is a higher direction. This is something that I would not come up with on my own. And I think it's part of what rings the authenticity of the Bible. But Jesus teaches them, 
You don't understand the scriptures. The question you're asking is just altogether wrong because all of these civil laws now will be done away with and people will neither marry nor be given in marriage for they cannot die anymore, verse 36, because they are equal to the angels, meaning that we enter into a spiritual existence that is different than our current physical existence. And our sons of God, and being of what I just said there, it is very important that we look elsewhere to the careful definition of what the Bible gives us in this. The Bible is very clear that our becoming sons and daughters of God is an adoption. We are brought into the family of God, not to become equal with God, but to be welcomed in the same presence and given the same privileges as sons and daughters. But God is always the creator. And we are always the creature. He is always the one receiving the worship, not us. And then we had this beautiful title right after that, being sons of the resurrection. And this can be sons or daughters. We know elsewhere it talks about becoming sons or daughters of God. This is the idea that we become children of the resurrection. That's a, that's a beautiful statement that we are not of death, that we are not of this world, that we are those that by the power of God and the grace of Jesus Christ are going to surpass the death of this world and become those who join Jesus Christ in his resurrection. He gives an example here of this life, Jesus does, of, of how it is that there will be life after death. And it's an interesting illustration. He goes back to Moses, Moses on the mountain with the burning bush, an illustration that would have been well known to every single person listening there. And if you go back to Exodus chapter two, you can read about it. Moses is just grazing the sheep on a mountain, does not understand the purposes of God in his life. And it says in chapter three, verse five, uh, verse four, and when the Lord saw he turned aside to see this burning bush. And God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look at God. And so the connection that Jesus makes here related to this and the point that Jesus makes is that God is not the God of the dead, but is the God of the living. And it's really important if you've not thought about that. There's certain movies that talk about the king of the dead, you know, that people are these disembodied zombies or whatever it may be, the dead. That is not the picture that the Bible gives of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of the Lord our God. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living and they live because of the power of God in them. Even though naturally we would die and decay and it would be the end of us and we would pass into judgment because of our sins. That there is a radical changing of events because of the grace of God in our life. Because of the action of Christ Jesus upon the cross and the work of his Holy Spirit in our lives. That we can have life eternal in Jesus Christ. And he is pointing these people in this direction and Jesus is always pointing people in this direction. And he radically clarifies this. In the timeline of his ministry, about a week prior to this, I want us to look at this, and this is where we're going to end our sermon this morning. In John uh, chapter 11, 
Uh, if, you, if you want to flip there, go for it, because it is such a vital passage. In John chapter 11, Jesus clarifies about this resurrection and what is going on with this resurrection. And this is as he is coming up to Bethany and Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus has been dead three days in the tomb. And I think it is always so important when we are reading the Bible to try to think of ourselves as in this place. And we have all been to very sad funerals. And we know what it's like to be three days after a person has passed. And it's starting to set in upon us that this person is truly gone. And they're not coming back in this life. And it's at this point that Jesus comes up to Martha in John eleven twenty one and says, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha has the faith that the Sadducees do not have. But then Jesus goes on in this most incredible and central statement in the New Testament. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What a powerful statement. He looks at her and says, this is not some vague resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. This life is going to come to you, not through some philosophical system or through some keeping of tradition. It's going to come to you through Jesus Christ, the Son. Do you believe this? He wants to know what her confession of faith is. And she looks right at him with her brother dead in the tomb and says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Amen. This is no vague sense of maybe I'll pass into eternity. Maybe my brother will be saved. I'm hoping it's going to happen. It is a very clear confession of faith. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God who is coming into the world, and you can cause anything to happen. And Jesus goes and says, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man walks out of the tomb and life comes to him. And it is a picture of resurrection life yet to come and the power of the Lord Jesus to be able to call forth the dead and have life come upon them. And so I ask you this morning, do you believe these things? If Jesus were here personally, he would ask you the same thing. Do you believe this? And I'm asking you this morning, do you believe this? Are you like the Sadducees? A secularist who just doesn't care and is looking for some way to just keep going through this life? Or do you believe and do you confess as Martha did with a joyful, glad heart that yes, Jesus is Lord. I believe that you are the Christ. Christians down through the ages have drawn their hope for the future and their hope in death from these things. This is the hope that we all stand on, which is the foundation of salvation in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I would like to read for you, as we close out today, uh, a, a little section from a letter written by a minister from long ago. It was written by Samuel Rutherford, who was a Scottish minister in the mid-17th century in Scotland, a time when death was very near and very constant, and people were always looking to the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ for what to say about the death of their loved ones. 
And this is him writing to a woman whose child had died at a very young age. He says, I make bold in Christ to speak my poor thoughts to you concerning your son fallen lately asleep in the Lord. I was not a witness to his death being called out of the kingdom, but you shall credit those whom I do credit. He died comfortably. It is true he died before he did so much service to Christ on earth as I hope and heartily desire your son, Mr. Hugh, shall do. But that were a real matter of sorrow if this were not to counterbalance that he has changed, he has changed service houses, but he has not changed services or masters. What he could have done in this lower house, he is now upon that same service in the higher house. And it is all one. It is the same service and the same master, only there is a change of conditions. And ye are not to think it is a bad bargain for your beloved son, where he hath gold for copper and brass in eternity for time. I believe Christ hath taught you not to sorrow because he died. All the not must be. He died too soon, and he died too young, and he died in the morning of his life, and this is all, but sovereignty must silence your thoughts. I was in your condition. I had but two children, but both are dead since I came hither. And the supreme and absolute former of all things giveth not an account of his matters. And the good husbandman, <clears throat> the good husbandman may pluck his roses and gather his lilies at midsummer. And for aught I dare say, in the beginning of the first summer month, and he may transplant young trees out of the lower ground to the higher, and where they have more of the sun and more of the free air at this season of the year. And what is that to you or to me? The goods are his own. The creator of time and winds did a merciful injury to nature in landing the passenger so early. They love the sea too well who complain of a fair wind and a desirable tide and a speedy coming ashore, especially the young to ashore. In that land where all the inhabitants have everlasting joy upon their heads, he cannot be too early in heaven. And so it's a beautiful encouragement to someone who has lost a dear loved one, encouraging them in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that in Christ those who know him shall live forevermore. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you this morning, and I pray that you would strengthen the faith of our hearts. And I pray for those that come into this place today either deceived as to what the scriptures say about the resurrection or those that are secularists, humanists, that believe nothing of the spiritual world, or those that are practical secularists, where they just deny these things, even though they nag at their hearts. And I pray this morning that we would be those individually that believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, having come into the world to bring life, that through the cross of Christ, that we might have eternal life, that we might not despair in death, but that we might hope in a future yet to come. Lord, we love you. And we long for that time when we will have undistracted devotion to you, that our hearts will be so near and close that we will see your face and rejoice in your presence. Until that time, preserve us and work out your eternal life in us, beginning even now, making all things new. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.